Let's turn to those ancient words. We're going to be looking at two different prophecies this evening, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. So if you're talented enough to hold on to one and have the other open, we're going to be actually kind of going back and forth between them a couple of times, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Up to this point, most of the time when we've been looking at the prophets, we have heard a negative message from them. God is condemning them for their idolatry and warning them that they're going to be taken off into exile, into captivity if they continue on. And uh, pretty soon it's clear that they're going to continue on, and so they're sent off to exile. But now I want to look at the, toward the end of these prophecies where the people are in exile, in captivity, and now God is speaking this time with a positive message, a message of return, a message that, that God is going to do new things. And so that's going to be our focus from these two uh, prophecies, one of which is to the, uh, the, the northern tribes of Israel, it's the prophecy of Ezekiel, and the other, Jeremiah, to the southern a tribe of Judah, each with their own uh, captivities. So before we get to the Scripture, let's open with a word of prayer. Holy Spirit, as you use these, these words to inspire Jeremiah and Ezekiel to speak to your people, continue to use your, your words to speak to us in this day, that we might understand what you're doing in this world what you're doing in our hearts and our lives, that we might respond appropriately. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have talked a lot about how the prophets condemn the sins of Israel and Judah and, and prophesy of exile as punishment. Israel to the north would fall to Assyria. Over 100 years later, Judah would fall to the Babylonians. But in the later parts of their prophecies, both Jeremiah and Ezekiel deal with people now already in captivity, and their prophecies turn to hope. Let's look at Jeremiah 31. We'll begin at verse 15. We'll begin at verse 15. This is what the Lord says, A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is what the Lord says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. I have surely heard Ephraim's moaning, and now he quotes their moaning, You discipline me like an unruly calf, and I've been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. After I strayed, I repented. After I came to understand, I beat my breast. I was ashamed and humiliated, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. End quote, or end of moaning. And then God goes on, Is not Ephraim my dear son, the child in whom I delight? Though I often speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I have great compassion for him, declares the Lord. Set up road signs, put up guideposts, take note of the highway, the road you take. Return, virgin Israel, return to your towns. How long will you wander, unfaithful daughter Israel? The Lord will create a new thing on earth. The woman will return to the man. 
This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. When I bring them back from captivity, the people in the land of Judah and in its towns will once again use these words. The Lord bless you, you prosperous city, you sacred mountain. They hadn't been able to say that to Jerusalem for a long time, called a, a, a prosperous city. People will all live, to get, will live together in Judah and all its towns, farmers and those who move about with their flocks. I will refresh the weary and satisfy the faint. At this, I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. So what Jeremiah is doing is actually recalling a dream that God had given him that he is now to communicate on to the people of Judah. It begins with a scene of Rachel weeping. Rachel's tomb was in Ramah, just outside of Bethlehem, right on the way that they would take to be carted off from Jerusalem into captivity in Babylon. And the picture is that that Rachel's weeping as her children are taken off into exile. We might say she's turning over in her grave. But then notice what God says. God says, stop crying. Stop crying. I've got good news for you. And he gives Jeremiah, and Jeremiah in turn gives Judah a picture of return from captivity. And then Jeremiah awakens from the best sleep he's had in years. Now something similar happens in the prophecy of Ezekiel. So turn with me to chapter 36. Ezekiel 36. He has spoken to Jeremiah through a dream or through a vision... And now he comes up with another odd way to kind of speak to the northern tribes of Israel. He actually tells Ezekiel to go prophesy to the mountains, the mountains of Samaria, the mountains of Israel. And I want to pick that up at verse 8, Ezekiel 36, verse 8. So this is a prophecy to the mountains. But you, mountains of Israel, will produce branches and fruit for my people Israel, for they will soon come home. I'm concerned for you and will look on you with favor. You will be plowed and sown, and I will, li- I will cause many people to live on you. Yes, all of Israel. The towns will be inhabited and the ruins rebuilt. I will increase the number of people and the animals living in you. They will be fruitful and become numerous. I will settle people on you as in the past, and I will make you prosper more than before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I will cause people, my people Israel, to live on you. They will possess you. And you will be their inheritance. You will never again deprive them of their children. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because some say to you, you devour people and deprive your nation of its children. Therefore, you will no longer devour people or make your nation childish. Childless, declares the Sovereign Lord. No longer will I make you hear the taunts of the nations. No longer will you suffer the scorn of the peoples or cause your nation to fall, declares the Sovereign Lord. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man... When the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. 
Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It's not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you profaned among the nations where you've gone, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. So we'll stop here again. At God's command, Ezekiel prophesies to the mountains of Israel. Mountains were often seen as, as witnesses, witnesses to covenants, witnesses of events, because they had been around for millennia. And it is also a prophecy of return. But it's really interesting that he says, despite their sinful actions, God is going to release them from captivity, but not for their sake, but rather for the sake of his holy name. God says, you know what? Your conduct, your sin, has caused me to, t- to oust you from the land, and yet people are saying, why did they get ousted from the land? What's their God up to? You've profaned my name because of your conduct. And so for the sake of my holy name, I'm going to bring you back. So the hope that both Jeremiah and Ezekiel give to their people is that God is forgiving their sins, especially their, their national breaking of covenant by delivering them from exile. But then at this point, both of the prophecies shift. God is not going to allow things to be as they always were as they return back to the land. God's going to do a new thing. He's going to do a new thing. He's going to bring them into a new age, bring them into a new era in which they would have a new relationship with their God. And this new relationship is characterized by a renewed covenant between God and Israel. Among other things, this renewed relationship would involve a return to the promised land, a rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple, the return of God to his house, the temple, as king of the whole world. But two of the things promised to Israel in that restored relationship with God are also promised to us today. And that is a new obedience to the covenant and a new heart. A new obedience and a new heart. So I want to look back now. We'll back, back up to Jeremiah once again, beginning at verse 27, chapter 31, verse 27, and look at the first of those, the new covenant. So we'll pick it up after uh, Jeremiah has woken from his sleep, and then God speaks to him. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will plant the kingdoms of Israel and Judah with the offspring of people and of animals. Just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, to overthrow, destroy and bring disaster, so I'll watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, the parents have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That was an adage by which they were saying uh, how, that oftentimes the parents' sins have caused problems for the children. But then he goes on and says, Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, their own teeth will be set on edge. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says, He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moons and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is His name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below searched out will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they've done, declares the Lord. Now in this section, we often focus on verses 31 through 34, and I do too, and I think rightfully so. It's a passage that seems to directly speak to us as believers today and not only to uh, the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And yet, it's for that reason I wanted to read the broader context to remind us that this is first and foremost a prophecy, a promise to Israel. As Christians, we sometimes take these verses out of context and think they only apply to Jesus and the church. And certainly there's a deeper meaning that points ahead to that. But the original meaning is words to the people of Israel and the people of Judah. You see, there was nothing wrong with the old covenant given at Mount Sinai. It was God's perfect word and will for his people to live by. But something was wrong. So what was wrong? Why the need for a new covenant that God announces in verse 31? Well, first, I believe that renewed is probably a little bit better translation of the Hebrew. The word can mean either renewed or new. And so you have to use the context to decide. But if you think about it, if you compare the aspects of the old covenant with the new covenant you find it's really the same. It's really the same other than the mediator of the covenant who is now Jesus. As you compare those aspects, and, and so some scholars actually say, you know, I think this is irony here. God is being ironic. It's, it's only new insofar as Israel failed to keep it. Israel didn't get it. The Sinai covenant had never penetrated their blindness or, or deafness, and so God says, let's try it again. Let's get it right. But clearly, what's wrong is not the covenant God gave. God doesn't give bad advice. God doesn't give bad commands. He doesn't give bad teaching. What's wrong is not the covenant God gave, but that they kept breaking the covenant. Now, part of our problem is we often equate the old covenant with the law, which I think is actually a bad translation for the word used there, which is Torah. Torah actually comes from a word which means to teach. And Torah is God's teaching. It's, Torah is the way that God wanted to teach Israel how to live. And if you think about it, in the Old Testament, the Torah was never a burden for Israel. In fact, the Psalms call it a delight. Just read Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Bible, and it's an ode to the law. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. How many meditate on the traffic laws of, or any other laws in the state of Michigan? The Torah was never a burden for Israel unless they made it so. Unless they made it so. And that was one of the problems. 
Because at times, Israel seemed to turn God's teaching into a set of laws, into a set of rules and regulations. They, it, it sort of became legalistic, and they became more focused on the laws than the God who gave them and, and the God who was trying to teach them how to live. I like to equate it to raising children. If they see their role in the household simply as keeping a set of rules that their parents laid down, it's going to be easy, probably natural, to rebel. But if they see their place in the the home as a beloved child of their parents who are seeking their best interests and trying to lovingly teach them how to live as good and godly people in the world, then there's a little less reason to rebel. God is trying to get them back to the basics of his household, to call them back into that loving relationship in which he seeks, he's seeking their best interest with his teaching, trying to lovingly teach them how to live as good and godly people in the world. Listen to the relational language. Verse 32, I was a husband to them. Verse 33, I will be their God, they will be my people. Verse 34, they will all know me, and that's the word yada, to know, being a language of intimacy. God wants a renewed relationship with them based on love, out of which, not because they have to follow rules, but out of that love by which they act rightly as good and godly people in the world. But how does this happen? How can people who've already failed to live out God's covenant become people who can produce godly covenant action rather than reverting back to their old ways? Well, the answer is not a brand new covenant. The answer is a brand new heart. Verse 33, God says, I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. But it comes out even plainer in the prophecy of Ezekiel. So back to Ezekiel. I promise this is the last turn we'll make. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 28. Ezekiel 36, verses 24 to 28. God has spoken to the mountains and then said to Israel, it's your, your, your fault, you profane my name, but I'm going to do this for the sake of my name. But then he's going to do more. He's going to make sure that they, get it, they do it better this next time. And so in verse 24 of Ezekiel 36, he says, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. So notice that the renewal of the covenant and the renewal of heart go together. And this is not a new theme. Back in Deuteronomy and also in Jeremiah, God talks about the need for his people to have a circumcised heart. That is, true obedience to the Torah, whose sign was circumcision, was not ultimately external. It wasn't all about that sign and all about all of the external things they did, but largely internal. 
That is, the Torah was not first and foremost about keeping rules and regulations. It was first and foremost, says Jesus, about loving God above all and loving your neighbor as yourself. And those actually, Jesus is quoting Old Testament laws when he says that. So what does this mean? Well, heart in the Old Testament was a little bit different concept than we have today. The heart was the center of one's being. And so it incorporated knowledge, will, emotions. Today we probably call it mind instead. God depicted Israel's problem as not, first of all, a problem of action, although it results in bad action, but a heart problem. A heart problem. Sometimes they were half-hearted. Divided loyalties between God and other gods. And sometimes they were hard-hearted. A heart of stone, or we might say a thick skull, which God's teaching couldn't penetrate, and they became rebellious. And both of those are, in a sense, relational problems. Look at the child-raising analogy again. Half-hearted children might have divided loyalties between their parents and their friends. Who do they follow? Whose advice do they take? Hard-hearted children, on the other hand, might be in active rebellion against the parents. There's no way they're going to take their advice. They want to live just the opposite of what their parents say. At times, both of them were Israel's problems, and at times, I think they are our problems as well in relationship with God. And so God comes into the exile and says, I'm not going to give you a bunch of new commandments. The old ones are just fine. I'm going to develop in you a new heart. Now, just because God says he's going to do it doesn't mean Israel doesn't have a role in it. Kind of like the body of a heart transplant patient. They either accept or reject the new heart. Either they cooperate with God in its development or stubbornly get in the way. But this heart transplant involves three things. Look at verse 25. First, it involves a new purity. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. The very first thing they had to do was clean house. Israel had to repent of her disobedience and idolatry, get rid of the idols in their land, task number one, in their return from exile, and the impurities in their lives. They must do this through repentance and forgiveness, something they could already work on in exile. If we want that kind of relationship with God and coming into his, his renewed covenant in the way he wants, the first thing we must do is get rid of those things that are in the way. But secondly, then, calls, he calls for a new heart. Verse 26, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In place of their half-heartedness and their hard-heartedness, their their divided loyalties and their rebellious nature, God is going to give a heart transplant, a heart of flesh, one that's flexible, teachable, loyal to God above all. And then finally, a new spirit, verse 27, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws That is, if they open up in repentance and willingly receive a heart of flesh, God will also give him his Holy Spirit 
to move them to maintain that relationship with God, to follow His teachings, and therefore to live good and godly lives. And that same thing is true for us. If we want to be in that that wholehearted relationship with God, we need a new heart. Not the heart that's inundated with our sin, but a new heart that's open to Jesus and that is uh, filled with the Holy Spirit's work. But now we remember that this was a, a real and historic promise to a real and historic people. So what does it have to do with us? What are these ancient words? have to do with us modern people. Well, hundreds of years after Israel returned from their exile and began living this way, becoming the people of the book, the people of Torah, like never before, with successes and failures, God decided to reveal himself in a new way, a more visible and tangible way in Jesus, his son. For what Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied was the initial renewed covenant in his son, God would offer the new covenant in all its fullness. Not just to Israel, but he would offer it to all people. So what happened when he did? Well, a number of believers from Israel saw this as the natural next step in their covenant relationship with God. They accepted Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah, And they formed the heart of the Christian church. On the other hand, there were some among the Jews that decided, no, this was a detour from the original covenant God had made with them and only them. And they didn't accept Jesus as their Messiah, and so they missed out on being part of that renewed covenant. And then there were others, non-Jews, Gentiles, who found this covenant relationship for the very first time. For all of them, Jesus went to the cross to take the punishment for everybody that everyone deserves when they fail. He he died for all the sin of the world, but it only takes heart or takes root in those who accept him, those who have been elected by God's grace, who've been moved by the Holy Spirit. To them, he offers this new heart and this new spirit that allows them, allows us to be in a renewed relationship with God and gives us increasingly a new ability to hear his teaching and live it out as good and godly people. Are you part of that renewed covenant today? Do you feel that God has worked in you a new heart? Do you feel the role of the Holy Spirit working in you? to keep you on the right track, to guide you along the right way. That's our call. And if it's not there, then we have to go back to square one. We have to throw out those idols that are getting in the way and come to God with repentance. Let's pray.